Carla, would you like 5,000 of my dollars? I would like to punch you in the face if you continue to call it your dollars. What? I'm just, I'm just learning from Lula Rich. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to our part two episode on Lula Rich. We are pretty fired up and raring to go for this episode because there is some content in here that one is kind of hilarious, but at the same time makes my blood boil. So we're going to have a lot of fun batting this stuff around today. Yeah, if you missed part one, check it out. We give a big overview of the multi-level marketing aspects of LuLaRoe. Can they ever be good? Um, how absurd LuLaRoe's management was. Oh my gosh, Mark yeah. and Deanne, horrible people. Not the best bosses in the world. Yeah. So. You and I also got into a pretty hefty debate about MLMs in general. And spoiler alert, if you didn't listen to episode one, Robert kind of thinks MLMs are not necessarily the worst thing in the world. I am convinced that they are the devil and do not like MLMs just across the board. I don't like MLMs, but I don't want to stop somebody from starting one and joining one. I just don't want people to jump into anything blindly that they're going to regret. Yeah, it can be such a risky proposition. The most important statistic that I think we highlighted from last episode was that somewhere somewhere in the range of less than 1% are making a profit when it comes to MLMs. You can find statistics saying it's much higher than that. But the Federal Trade Commission, which is generally a pretty reliable source, that do, it just doesn't have a dog in the fight, right? They don't care about MLMs. They came out and said, look, guys, this is not a good proposition. It's less than 1% of people who join an MLM are actually making a profit on it. So... I don't know. That seems like a pretty long shot to me. feels a little bit like gambling. Well, whether you love MLMs or not, or you think you would be super successful if you were in one or you don't, LuLaRoe, as portrayed in the Lula Rich documentary, definitely is not one that I would recommend that you join. Yeah, this company in particular has some really, really crazy aspects to them that we're going to get into today. So the theme of this part two episode is that MLMs take everything that's crappy about a lot of workplaces and kind of mishmash them all into one big, beautiful package. And yeah, there are just so many things that are tough about a lot of workplaces and almost all of them show up in the MLM universe. On steroids, like heavily amplified. Yeah, they crank it up to 11, as the Spinal Tap folks would say. When I was watching the Lula Rich documentary, I kept thinking, man, there's so many things about this MLM that seem terrible, but I feel like a lot of these aspects that really suck about it show up in a lot of different kinds of workplaces. So today we are going to talk about what kinds of bad things about MLMs you actually might run into in a lot of different types of work, but why MLMs, one, put all the bad things together and two, as we said, crank it up to 11. So our first clip today dives into the pretty toxic brand of feminism that existed at LuLaRoe. Why don't we play it and just hear how terrible things were for women there. LuLaRoe is not trying to undermine patriarchal family structures. In fact, they're reinforcing them. 
They're using cheap language of feminism, girl boss, empowerment, to latch on to this pop feminist message that doesn't actually tangibly change anything. Maureen Startup Deanne's mom wrote this book called The Secret Power of Femininity, The Art of Attracting, Winning, and Keeping the Right Man for You. Stand before a mirror in the privacy of your room and say to yourself, I'm just a helpless woman at the mercy of you big, strong men. Stamp your feet daintily, saucily, and shake your curls as much as to say, I am furious, but what can a little girl like me do with a big, strong man like you? Deanne used her mother's book as an example and taught trainings out of it. The way she taught it was almost like how to use your special parts to get your husband to do what he wanted to. <laughs> she actually said that once. I was like, oh, God. Uh, Carl, I don't understand what would make your blood boil from this. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's actually really good advice. We should just publish that clip as like, this is what we think you should do with your life. Oh my God, Robert, it just makes me so crazy. The thing I think that maybe upsets me most about this clip is the realization that like this stuff is still going on, right? This was so recent that this whole LuLaRoe debacle happened and that these women were going to these conferences and listening to this kind of poison being poured into their brain. Uh, it just, it makes me, makes me want a few minutes alone in a room with, uh, with Deanne and her mom where there might not be any consequences as to what happens. Oh, they're just, I mean, it's everything that is wrong with the world when it comes to feminism summed up in one nice, neat little package. So this clip, there's really two parts to it. And let's break it down into, into the two. The first part is sort of about the way the LuLaRoe is not trying to upend any traditional patriarchal family values. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Not a fan. So, yeah, I mean, we see this kind of attitude so often portrayed in the media. It is by no means dead. It is very much alive in our culture today. And I think it's just going to be a constant battle that women will be fighting for a really long time to come. You know, it's like you think of Mary Poppins and the suffragettes fighting for women to have the right to vote. And that was such an, a momentous occasion in history for women. But the fight is not over. I mean, there's still so much ground to be gained in order for women to be seen as valuable for their minds and their opinions and not just as baby makers and pretty faces, which I think is really what the whole LuLaRoe brand of feminism was all about. It's like, you are a pretty face, so use that to your advantage and go out and sell it and sell these pretty clothes. And there's a little bit more to women than that. Yeah, it's just such a ridiculous approach to half the population on earth. There are a lot of period pieces that you can watch where you see women entering the workforce within the last few decades, you know, like from the 50s on. And you see that their compensation is clearly weird and their roles are limited and that they're, they're paid less because they don't have to take care of a family or anything like that. It's mm -hmm. sort of seen as a hobby. And there are still people who make payroll decisions and management decisions in companies today that, that have that same 
horrible set of values that they try to they try to enforce on people. Yeah, so the gender pay gap is still a very real thing in the United States. Women today make about 84 cents on the dollar compared to their male counterparts. And I know there has been a lot out there about kind of debunking the gender gap and that that pay gap that we see is just about the choices that women make and it's not actually about men paying other men more money for the same work that women do. It's just that women are choosing to do lower paid work. But I found one statistic that's really interesting and that completely shoots that argument to hell, which is that if you just look at female primary care physicians, they are making about 25% less than their male counterparts, according to a number of studies that have been done. So I mean, that's exactly the same kind of work. You're talking about people in the exact same field and the exact same subfield of primary care, and they're making less. One theory as to why that's happening is that women tend to spend more time with each patient than male primary care physicians do, which causes them to see fewer patients and thereby be less of a profit center and earn less in take-home pay which is obviously crappy. You should be incentivized to spend, you know, as much time with each patient as they need. But in any event, the gender pay gap is very real and very much a result of this kind of attitude that we see featured in the clip. So that's an interesting study about physicians. The point I was going to make about these patriarchal family values and how it relates to the gender wage gap is that women do in in these sort of patriarchal family structures have a tendency to choose roles within the same field within the same subdiscipline however narrow you want to make it that allow for a different work life balance and some huge fraction of families think that is the only way that it should be and i think that's really terrible uh what whether i don't want to try to deal with the the realities of the gender wage gap and all of its causes and all the societal implications I think it's just kind of funny that LuLaRoe exists in a world where they're they're not trying to upend that. Instead, they're trying to create, they're, they're trying to embrace that idea that women should be at home, should be taking care of the family, and that this can be a side gig for them to contribute to their male-dominated family household financial setup. Yeah, it's just so perverse, though, because ultimately all LuLaRoe really cares about is how much money the people at the top are taking home. So, I mean, we see this mantra of full-time pay for part-time work, which we talked a bit about in the last episode, and yet they're holding up these women as examples who are putting in an insane amount of hours, way more than, you know, a normal 40-hour-a-week, quote, full-time job. So I think at one point we hear Deanne talking about someone who's putting on 16 parties a week for a string of like three years. I mean, 16 parties a week, think about all of the prep that goes into that, not to mention like just the pure party time itself. If we imagine the party is only lasting two hours per party, that's already up to 32 hours a week. Do we honestly think this woman is getting quote, full-time pay for part-time work? Not even close. She's probably working like 70, 80 hours per week to like go all in on this business. So they're just sort of paying lip service to this nonsense about like the woman's place is in the home, but if it'll make me money, then come on, like work 80 hours a week, get in there and get it done. 
So let's jump to the second part of this clip that goes beyond the patriarchal elements and talks more about how you can use your special parts to make a difference. Oh my goodness. I mean, what an ins... Okay, it seems insane on its face, but we should not be surprised by this kind of attitude, right? This is like, you know, women's value comes from their looks. Women's value comes from their sexuality. Women's value comes from their ability to procreate. I mean, this is a mantra that has been repeated and echoed throughout history ad infinitum. So it shouldn't be surprising. I think it's just portrayed really starkly in this context of LuLaRoe. And you know, we had the Me Too movement, which was entirely about women kind of rebelling and saying, God damn it, like we're more than just a body. You know, we have real opinions and we're talented actresses and we can really dig into the material and make great work. We can be producers, we can be directors, we can basically do anything we want. We can obviously do anything that a man can do. And yet the Me Too movement seems not to have reached LuLaRoe's ears or if it did, it went in one and out the other. Yeah, I'm not sure that Deanne is such a fan. I think she likes the idea that she has assets gosh i feel like such a skis saying this but skeezy yeah yeah but i think her perception is she has assets to offer and she's going to use them to her advantage yeah it's pretty terrible stuff and you know as much as we should be i mean i you know on the one hand it seems like we should kind of be desensitized to it by now But man, I don't want us to ever become desensitized to it. No matter how many awful people get out there and spout this nonsense, we got to fight back every single time because it is complete nonsense. And just because it's been echoed throughout the course of history doesn't mean we should be desensitized to it. So fight the good fight, guys. Well, I think even in a traditional workforce outside of a LuLaRoe or an MLM, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that this sort of things happening. Uh, yeah, we certainly saw this portrayed in the movie Bombshell about the Fox News Network and Roger Ailes and his sexual exploitation of the women who worked there and that horrible scene, which is apparently completely based in reality of him like having women come in to meet with him one-on-one behind closed doors and he had them do this spin so he could see them. And I mean, I'm sure this kind of thing happens in a lot of different kinds of workplaces. I think it is becoming less prevalent ever so gradually as women are more and more empowered to speak up and feel that collective courage that comes from, you know, their sisters having spoken up before them. So I I do think it is becoming a little bit less common And it can only get better if women continue to be brave enough to raise their voice and say, hey, this is happening and it's really not okay. So let's dive into our next clip where we hear a little bit about the LuLaRoe brand of feminism from one of the sales reps' husbands. When Mama became the moneymaker, it was like, wait a minute, wait, 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 hold on, hold on just a minute. I gave you 5,000 of my dollars and suddenly <laughs> your hobby is like taking over our family or whatever. You gotta let us in there. It's your money or whatever, but it's our money. Like, we're married, okay? And you gotta let us help. Carla, would you like 5,000 of my dollars? 
I would like to punch you in the face if you continue to call it your dollars. What? I'm just I'm just learning from Lula Rich. So this is apparently a, a real guy who's really a husband of one of the Lula Rose sales reps. And he's giving a speech to a group of women about letting your husbands in. And according to the documentary, this was a, something that was really pushed by LuLaRoe corporate of letting your husband step in at a certain point when the company starts to get really successful. So in other words, at some point they pat you on the head and say, thanks for getting it to this point. We got it from here, honey. Things are about to get complicated. Don't worry your pretty little head about it anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, you're using my money. Okay, so lots to talk about from this clip. But yeah, the first thing is this guy starts off by saying, I gave you $5,000 of my money. And the way he phrases that, like his emphasis is so strong on those words. I gave you 5,000 of my money. And now that your business is like taking over the family, I want you to let me in. I mean, yeah, he's basically saying what I was just saying, like, I'm going to pat you on the head now, sweetheart, and say, don't worry, the men have got this from here, right? I mean, that's what, he, that's what he's saying. There's no other way to spin that. Do you think that happens in corporate America as well as in the LuLaRoe culture, where you got to just women get out of the way, the men will take care of it? I for sure think that it does. I think this comes up a lot in my prior universe of litigation, where women are doing a lot of the behind the scenes work, but when it comes time to actually take a case to trial in the courtroom, suddenly people want the man in charge, whether that's coming from your firm or whether it's coming from pressure from the clients. But there is a desire to just like, well, the man needs to be the face of all this once we're actually in front of the jury. You know, they need to see someone trustworthy. So yeah, man, I think this is something that is unfortunately not unique to MLMs or to LuLaRoe, but that pervades a lot of different workplaces in America. I think it's changing, but it's a long it's a long path to get there. Like my company, I know we have certainly made an effort to increase our senior leadership diversity. And I think a lot of big companies are doing the exact same thing because they realize the errors of their ways, that they're missing out on a lot of great ideas. And if you're relying on just the men to come in and solve all your biggest problems, you're not always going to get the best solutions. Yeah, for sure. There's been so many studies about how diversity really helps firms financially do better because having a lot of different unique perspectives and unique voices, surprise, surprise, causes a lot of unique solutions. (laughs) So yeah, it's just so narrow-minded to think that this is like some quota or box that you have to check. Like, well, I guess we got that female, you know, position in here and we hired those two black people, we're good to go now. Can we get back to focusing on the real thing? Like, no, the real thing is you need diverse voices and it makes such an important difference to your bottom line ultimately. So I want to go back to the my, our, your money thing and separate versus combined finances inside of a family. Because I, it sounded like they were living a combined financial lifestyle where their money was pooled together, but that dude was operating very much as though they were living totally separate financial lives. Yeah, well, he seemed to think of it as his money until, until she there's started a lot earning of it. a lot. Yeah. yeah, and all of a sudden then it's like, what's mine is yours, sweetie. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think generally in a relationship, 
you know, certainly a, a marriage, a long-term committed relationship. I personally think it is a fabulous, wonderful thing to combine your finances and treat everything as genuinely joint, no matter who is the one seemingly, you know, mostly responsible for the money. Like you guys are a team and you're doing everything together. So I am a big fan of that. It works really well for you and me. I have made a lot more than you in the past. These days you're making quite a bit more than me. <laughs> so it has just been kind of like a seesaw and we've supported each other throughout the whole thing and never had any dynamics of jealousy or thinking of, you know, this dollar is mine and that dollar is yours. It's just all been ours. And that's worked really, really well for us. I don't know that it works for everyone. And I was going to say, if you, if you meet and you begin your relationship when you're at a similar stage in life. So a lot of folks meet, you know, in their, in their twenties, maybe they haven't gotten super financially established. I think that's a great time. And, and if you're coming together, then it's really easy to build your financial package together and treat it as a unit and, and operate that way. There are a lot of people who don't come together at that same point in life. And people are, are at a different stage economically, financially, they've had different histories. I think in that case, you really have to be pretty deliberate about what you want to do because if somebody's halfway to saving to retirement and somebody else hasn't even thought about saving for retirement, maybe you, you want to keep your money separate and that's totally reasonable. Most important, you got to have a plan and I don't know, communicate and talk about it in a respectful way rather than the way this guy does in his presentation. Yeah. This guy is just being so condescending to his wife and to the, the women in the room in general, I think saying the like, come on now, it's going really well. Now it's time to let me help you out, babe. I mean, just everything about that is so odious to me. And the fact that LuLaRoe corporate would push this message of handing things over to your husband at a certain point. I mean, the language that we heard from our first clip about LuLaRoe basically just kind of sort of paying lip service to these cheap ideas of feminism is so dead on. I, I feel it was such a thin veneer of feminism of like, oh, you want to help women when really it was like, mm, okay, but back in your place as soon as it starts to do well. What I think is crazy is that these LuLaRoe women that do happen to be successful, the idea that they would go bring in their husband to come meddle in the middle of it once they had gotten into that top 1%, one of that rare air of actually being successful at it. What are you doing? If you start a business and you're able to make it work without somebody being in the middle of it, why? <laughs> what are you getting? Way. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, all you're getting is some added risk without a whole lot of meaningful support. At some point you're going to grow and you need to build a team and your family is a reasonable team to work with. I say that the whole LuLaRoe brand is like one crazy nutty family all working together and putting people <laughs> into roles that they're totally not qualified for. But inside of your small family unit and your small business that you've started, it's a reasonable thing to look towards family. But my goodness, don't let them come take charge after you've you've gotten it to where you wanted it to be. Now let somebody come in and ruin it with their ideas. Yeah, it's just ridiculous from start to finish. Don't like it. Don't like it at all. So our next clip takes us into the world of how to be a salesperson, right? LuLaRoe 
succeeds only on your ability to sell both the dream of being in your downline and the dream of buying the fancy clothes that they have to offer. And doing that is, is sometimes tough and a little bit invasive into your personal relationships. They actually had us write down how many people we knew and can name by name, and they had like categories split up into it. Our goal was to gather as many people as possible. So I think there are some sales jobs out there in the marketplace that your ability to leverage your contacts is really important to, to go find people who would be interested in buying your product that you're representing and selling and having that large personal network that you can go reach out to is a big deal. Not every sales role, but many. But I kind of think people who get into this, well, surely they know that they're going to have to do that, but do they really have an appreciation for how, how invasive that's going to feel? So I have done this. My old firm would have senior associates who were like just on the cusp of making partner, um, hopefully, sit down with like training people who were there to like help you figure out how to be a better networker and salesman. And one of the things they had us do was write down like a list of every person we were friends with that we went to law school with, every person that we had made friends with and like the professional universe met at a conference, that kind of thing. And people that we were still close with that we went to high school with. And what are those people doing now? Are any of them running a small company that could one day become a big company that might one day be in litigation and might one day call you for your services? So yeah, I have personally sat down and been in this woman's shoes of making a list of basically like not everyone I'd ever met, but everyone that I could think of who might even possibly one day maybe lead me to a client. So what, what class did you take in law school where they taught you how to do this? Didn't. What? Up, didn't. Yeah. No? Yeah, this is not something that they talk to you about when you are in law school is that by the way, did you know you were going to be a salesman as a really large part of your job as an attorney? I think that's true of a lot of different roles in the world, right? I mean, if you're a small business owner, hopefully you realize that your business is only going to grow as much as you're able to go convince people to use it. And so that inherently has some salesmanship requirements that are part of it. And there are, you know, law firms or if you're a physician or if you're a talent agent or th there are a lot of roles where you you have to do this. And there are a lot of roles where you, you really wouldn't think that accountant, perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. As you ascend in your career, part of your job can often be a bit of salesmanship or not salesmanship is one thing, a bit of network driven contact. It's like it's your job to go grow this business through your relationships in a role that you might've perceived as being very technical or very not sales oriented at all. Yeah. I mean, I, at least had some idea of what I was getting into because I saw it growing up um, with my dad, who was also an attorney, and he talked to me about how the business had really changed. I mean, when he was graduating from law school, the idea that you would have to market yourself or like build a network was not just unheard of, but looked down on. Like only the really, really bad lawyers who went to bad law schools and graduated at the bottom of their class they were the only ones who would have to do like the dirty work of networking. That just wasn't a thing. Like if you 
did well and got into a good firm with a good reputation, that was it. That was your marketing. You worked at a good firm with a good reputation. And it, you know, clients just came to you because you were one of only a small number of law firms that most people had heard of. Now, I think what's ignorant about that is that some lawyer somewhere had to start that firm and build up that good reputation. So it's kind of hidden, but it's there, right? If you're really thinking carefully about what your life in this career is going to be like, you should be able to figure it out. But yeah, it is an enormous part of practicing law today. And I'm sure, like we talked about, it's an enormous part of a lot of other professions. Well, I think even just from the networking for people and hiring, not just for clients, if you're in any kind of leadership or management role, a decent part of your job is finding great people to fill out your team as you as you grow or you have vacancies and turnover. Building out a network and having the sales skills to go communicate to somebody that the job that you have to offer is, is right for them is an important part of making sure you can be successful. And I don't think people who are engineers and go to school for that sort of thing and take on some sort of part-time engineering, part-time leadership role plan for that. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a surprise to a lot of folks when they get into what they think is going to be like a really technical profession. Like, I do this specific thing for a living, not remembering that, oh, first I have to get someone to hire me to do this specific thing for a living. And I I think a lot of people have a negative reaction to the idea of networking I put myself in that category. I do not love the idea of trying to, you know, hustle, get out there, meet a lot of people, shake a lot of hands. It did not come very naturally to me. But I will say that the people who are really good at it, I think are the people who just love what they do very, very much. And it's natural for them to want to talk to people about what they do because they genuinely enjoy it. And they really just think of it as not quote-unquote networking, but making friends, right? Which doesn't sound nearly as bad. So I think if you really, really enjoy what you do and you're thrilled to meet new people who are also in that vein or who could need someone with that skill, then you're going to be excited to get out there and talk to folks about it and genuinely make real connections and real friendships. Yeah, whether your sales are like a short sales cycle or very long-term major project, extended sales cycle. It's about building relationships, right? It's about taking the time to understand what other people's needs are and identifying where the service or product or offer that you're bringing to the table has a natural overlap and trying to help both your company and their company see that and and, and make a productive match. Yeah. I mean, I think about this podcast that you and I are doing, we're starting this totally from scratch, right? We're doing it because we really care about it and we love the message of helping people think about money-related issues, making money less of a taboo. That's something I'm really passionate about and genuinely enjoy. So going out and making friends who are also like part of the personal finance community and who are excited to talk about these issues, that doesn't make me want to like shrink in the corner and put a blanket over my head. (laughs) (laughs) Like uh, the idea of networking in my prior career used to do. And I think that's because if you're genuinely just really excited and feel like, you know, you're such a good fit with what you're doing, then it becomes a lot more fun. 
I think you're right. So let's move on to our next clip. This one is a fun one. So it's all about the idea that LuLaRoe was kind of a cult, right? We see several women in the documentary talking about this moment where it was like a bucket of cold water over them where they went, oh my God, I'm in a cult. And it feels like it might have been a little bit cultish. So let's listen to what one of the experts had to say about that. When you're inside a lie, a lie that, that has told you that you're in the right place at the right time, and that the people around you have the right answer and everybody else out there has is wrong. You belong into this community of winners, enlightened people. This is what a cult does. These people at the top are portrayed as near godlike figures. They are enlightened beings and the epitome of good people just trying to help you. Have you ever been in a cult, Robert? I don't think so, but maybe I didn't even know. So Robert and I went to Texas A&M University, and I, I wrote about this in our last blog post, which, by the way, you should check out the blog. It's really fun. And I do feel like looking back on it, that experience of being in undergrad at Texas A&M had some, a little bit of cultish vibes to yeah. it here and there. Yeah, I think so. So there are all these traditions about like yells that you do and hand signs that you do and places where you can and can't go as a, as a freshman or even a sophomore, words you can't say as a freshman or a sophomore. Like there are, there are all kinds of things that in hindsight seem pretty darn weird. But at the time when you're there and you're They like, also seem weird. <laughs> Maybe you were smarter than I was and you thought they were weird at the time too. I think for me, when I was fully in it, as like an 18-year-old, it just felt like this warm hug of coming into this group of people who were all into the same weird shit <laughs> that I was into at the time of like, you know, being a part of this traditional school environment and rooting for the football team and like saying howdy to each other on campus I mean, there's like a, there's a very serious, powerful culture at that school. And when you're in it, it feels just like being in a warm bath. It's comforting and you feel just really embraced in a way that I don't think I had ever really experienced before I went to college there. Well, I think some of these MLMs and, and other types of things like this definitely have that that same quality right you feel like you're yeah. part of something special you're kind of in the know you're in the club you feel valued there are people who you get along with who have a similar life outlook who have similar objectives and it feels really fun to be hanging out together which just looks really attractive to all the people on the outside who are thinking about joining yeah and i'm sure that that warm fuzzy feeling that i experienced as an undergraduate student is the same feeling that they are experiencing it's just that they are experiencing it with this company that has an ulterior motive of wanting them to just buy, buy, buy more of their product without genuinely caring whether they can actually resell it to somebody else. Well, I think some of these cult-like groups and true cults can be pretty sinister. I don't know if Lula Rich, Lula Bro was quite as bad as Heaven's Gate or anything. I don't, I don't think everybody... <laughs> 
you know, drank the Kool-Aid or whatever. Yeah, no mass suicide, but probably some mass bankruptcy filings, I'm guessing. Just not, you know, not nothing. Yeah. What we see with LuLaRoe of creating this kind of cult vibe is not totally unrelated to what a lot of workplaces do. Again, MLMs take everything bad about workplaces and dial it up to 11. So it's definitely a lot worse in this environment. But there are a lot of workplaces that really push their corporate culture. You know, they have a lot of conferences where they take people away, put them all in the same room, try to get them all amped up about whatever their goal or their product is. I mean, this is not just unique to MLMs. I think the thing that connects to traditional work that, that's even more meaningful than that is just the the whole idea of wrapping up your whole personality in your job, right? I, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody. I love what I get to do and I'm excited about it. And I, I left my company and went to go on a big hiking adventure for a year and we traveled and I missed it and wanted to come back. And part of that, I'm sure, is because a big a big piece of my identity was wrapped up in what I did for work. And I think you have to be really careful about that because you sort of create this mental cult, if you will, of, of where you work is who you are and what you're all about. And all of your value is fully tied into that. And your employer, while they probably value you a lot and like you and don't want you to go anywhere, at the same time, at, at the first sign of real financial strife, they have to make difficult decisions about who's going to be a long-term part of their team in a way that a lot of employees don't think about on their own. I generally think it is not a great idea to have all of your self-worth wrapped up in what you do for a living. And I understand why it's hard for people to separate that because you spend so many of your waking hours at your job. So if that's not who you are, then you know there's not that much of you left over. So it, it makes a lot of sense when you look at it, but you just have to remember how replaceable you ultimately are. Even if you're really, really great at your job and they would miss you like crazy, ultimately another person could step in there and do the thing that you are doing. So if it's not lighting you up personally and making you excited to get up in the morning and go chase those work challenges that are facing you for the day, it's probably time to think about something else because this whole vibe of like, we're a family and, you know, we're all in this together is nice, but it's ultimately a little bit of a facade, right? If they can just slot somebody else into your place, then it's not really a family, is it? I don't want to dive deeply into this topic here, but it makes me think about one of the good benefits of moving away from like retirement packages and, you know, pension plans where you had a defined benefit program from your employer to, you know, you, you contributed and managed it yourself, which there's a whole bunch of issues related to this. But I think one of the good takeaways from that change is that you aren't locked into an employer for your entire lifetime. And if you find out over time that it's not working for you, great, go find something that is. Yeah, that is one of the positive things about moving away from pensions, for sure. Yeah, despite all the, the negatives and challenges that, that are going to be fall out from that, I do think people need to remember that they do have that flexibility and that they made a commitment when they started to work somewhere, but it wasn't a lifetime commitment. And you should find whatever really puts you in a position to thrive in total in your life for your employment and, and get out of that mental cult that you've put yourself in if that's where you find yourself. Yeah. So our final clip is from a woman 
who was speaking about her experience after leaving LuLaRoe and the really dire financial straits that she had gotten herself into. And I think a lot of the reason that she got herself into that was because she bought so completely in to this cult vibe that we've been talking about. So let's hear what the fallout was like for her. I had to sell both of the vehicles that I had bought. I remember them coming to pick up my vehicle and my son running out and said, Mommy, why are you crying? It's just a car. And that really spoke to me. At that point, though, it was a lost cause between me and my husband. On the weeks I don't have my children, I eat cheese and crackers for dinner to save money. And I'm also having to claim bankruptcy for the credit cards that I still owe on. And my heart just completely goes out to this poor woman. So just to give a little bit more background on it, the credit card debt that she's referring to here was, I think, almost entirely rung up by money spent on keeping up appearances, looking a certain way like the LuLaRoe corporate people were really pushing her to do. So she talks about these two cars, which I think were pretty nice cars that essentially got repossessed. She spent a lot of money on obviously the clothing, both you know in the hopes of reselling it and to wear herself. She spent a lot of money on makeup and we also hear her talk in an earlier point in the documentary about weight loss surgery and that she spent a lot of money on that. And that was something that was really shoved down her throat by LuLaRoe Corporate. No, no, what was crazy is, she, yeah, she felt like she needed to keep up this sort of luxury appearance in order to be successful in selling both the LuLaRoe clothing and the LuLaRoe dream to be part of her downline. And she got way over leveraged in the sense that she, she took up big car loans, she took up a bunch of credit card debt, and I guess was planning on paying that off with her downline checks when other people joined in. At some point, they changed the bonusing program, and she probably didn't change her spending patterns to keep up with that, thinking it would eventually catch up. But man, it's just so crazy that, that she felt this much pressure to buy stuff that she didn't really need in order to, to fulfill her role. I guess she probably needed to look nice and look really professional, but did she need a super two fancy cars? Almost certainly not. So that one, I mean, this hits close to home in a lot of different ways for me because I have felt a lot of pressure to look a certain way and project a certain image um, in my career as an attorney. And I think it's common across a lot of professions, right? We have this pressure to, you know, project an image of success, which we hope will breed more success. So, I mean, I think of real estate agents having, especially to drive really nice cars because they want to look like they really know what they're doing and they've had a lot of successful clients in the past. Well, at least that's a tool in their sales kit, right? They're going to have families often in their car. They probably have often a big, nice SUV. I mean, I'm sure the woman in the clip thought of everything as part of her sales toolkit. Yeah, she probably, I think she did have a fancy SUV and turns out she was maybe filling that with clothes for her occasional 
LuLaRoe parties? Yeah, maybe. But, you know, she could have bought like a used Honda minivan as opposed to a Cadillac Escalade or, or whatever it was. I don't remember exactly what the brand of car was. But, I mean, there's this kind of leveling up about everything. And I think that part goes to selling the dream, right? You want people to see the life you're living and be jealous of it and want in on it and therefore become part of your downline, right? That's the whole gambit. So if you're not doing that spending, if you're just like squirreling the money away, then you're not you're not doing what Lula Corbett wants you to do. And maybe your chances of success go down. Maybe they don't in reality, but LuLaRoe is certainly going to tell you that your chances of success will go down. I mean, I do think there are sales roles where your ability to look a certain part is a, a pretty big prerequisite to actually having the success that you want. I don't know that LuLaRoe is necessarily one of them, but there definitely are roles out there where you have to look fancy because the people who are buying from you expect it. Yeah. So I I think of maybe like a a sports agent or any kind of like Hollywood, just a talent agent in general, you're probably getting in rooms with a lot of higher up people. And if you show up looking, you know, pretty funky and like you're just really out of place in this world of money, they may not trust you and may not want to book your client. So I, I mean, there's a difference between looking funky and out of place and having luxuries that are impractical and not really appropriate for your income level. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think most people who are doing this kind of lavish spending and justifying it by saying that it's necessary for my job, it's probably not actually truly necessary for your job. You do need to look presentable and you need to look clean and you need to not like walk into a super fancy restaurant and just like have your jaw hanging and, you know, hold your fork in your fist like a, (laughs) you know, like a primate would do as opposed to a human. So yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't be totally out of place and uncomfortable and unfamiliar with like the society rules, dumb as they may be. But yeah, you probably do not need to be driving a luxury vehicle. You just need a clean vehicle, right? So I I do think this idea that you have to have the best of the best luxury kind of goods to be in almost any kind of career is usually BS. Yeah, we did an episode on Fight Club a few months ago where we met with our our sister show, the Mile High Fi show with uh, Doug and Carl. And we talked a little bit about this. We talked about how you sort of felt pressure to get a Cadillac, a nice car, when you started out your legal career because you thought you might be driving clients around or it'd be important to kind of match the the expectations of, of the role. And then you quickly learned that that totally wasn't necessary. You wouldn't be driving clients around at all. Uh, or if you would, it would be way in the future when your compensation was way larger and there was so much more surplus income to, to go justify that sort of spending. Yeah, that's definitely one of our biggest financial mistakes, I think, was buying such a fancy car at a really young age because I felt this social pressure to do it. Um, when in reality, yeah, I was just too far down on the totem pole for anyone to trust me to drive a client somewhere. Like it was just never going to happen. And then as I got farther into my career, we had downgraded 
the, I mean, I say downgraded, I felt like it was an upgrade in a lot of ways, but we traded in the Cadillac and got a much less expensive used um, Prius, which was a perfectly great car. Priuses are generally like really nice cars. I mean, it, it's a great car, um, but it wasn't, didn't have quite the panache of gold mist. But yeah, it was such a good decision for us. It cost us a lot less money. Now we're down to one car and it's still, it's a Prius. <laughs> we like love Priuses and think they're great. And especially with gas prices being high right now, it's uh, an awesome car to have. So yeah, it was a silly thing to do and a good lesson to learn. Thankfully, it didn't hurt us too terribly financially. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a big deal for us because we were in a position to be able to afford it. But I think this poor lady got pretty over leveraged to go do that. And I feel like a lot of folks fall into that trap. They feel like they need to present this artificial Instagram lifestyle of who they are and what they're all about in order to go push their product. And that's really unfortunate. Yep. It's not a good thing at all. So if you find yourself in one of these careers where people are, you know, pushing you to look a certain way or like live in a certain area, drive a certain kind of car, just take it all with a really, really big grain of salt because the reality is nobody cares what you're doing nearly as much as they care what they're, what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're doing personally themselves and, you know, they may like toss some comments your way, but just... Let them slide off like water off a duck's back because what other people think just shouldn't matter to you ultimately. Do good work, look presentable, but do not, you know, feel the need to wear an Armani suit every day. Well, Carla, what I think our listeners should let slide off a duck's back is uh, anybody who invites them to participate in uh, LuLaRoe in the future or really most MLMs. I, I think you should, you should just stay away. Mm-hmm. I think that's the takeaway from these two episodes. Yeah. That... I'm going to clarify that to all MLMs. I would urge you to stay away from all of them. Correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 these last two episodes, I hope what you learned was both that, that the Lula rich program was actually pretty entertaining. You should check it out, but also that, yeah, these MLMs are not going to be your path to financial freedom and whatever you thought you were being sold on the hope and, everything else that that guy in episode one was telling us about. Yeah, I mean, we've walked through every single one of these points today, right? And we've learned that there are a lot of things about working that can be tough, right? That you find not just in the MLM universe, but in all kinds of jobs. But I think one of the few places you're going to find every single one of them is in an MLM. And one of the few places where they're going to be like on steroids is an MLM. So steer clear, guys. Stay safe out there and just say no to MLMs. Thanks for listening with us today. Take care.